If it's your first time visiting us this morning here at Legacy Church, welcome. We are uh, honored and privileged that you chose to come worship with us. You may be wondering, why is he up there speaking? When are we jumping into the worship set? Well, we do things. We, we kind of flip it on its head around here a little bit. Uh, during our worship flow for the morning, we like to open up with a welcoming song, uh, but then jump right into the scriptures, uh, see what the Lord has in store for, for us through his word, and then we respond through worship at the end of our service, taking communion while worship is happening and uh, celebrating uh, what God revealed to us through his word. So it's, uh, glad, we are so glad to have you this morning again. Our pastor, our lead pastor, Luke Thomas, and his wife, Paula, are on a well-deserved retreat for Acts 29 pastors in California this week. They uh, got away, got with other pastors who knew uh, kind of what they were going through in life and were able to refuel. So we are so glad that they got to do that. That was well-deserved. But uh, unfortunately for you, Luke asked me to fill in for him this Sunday and uh, open up the word to us. But it is an honor anytime I get up here and fill those kind of shoes. Uh, I'm quickly humbled and realize I don't have much to offer, but we have uh, the word of God, which does not return void. And so let me pray for our time and we'll jump in and see what the Lord has in store for us. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we can come and know that you and you alone are our one provider, the God who is and who was and who is almighty, the God who sees our most detailed needs and uses our smallest offerings for his glory. Be with us this morning. May your word change our hearts and make us different as we leave this place. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. In 1986, the greatest movie ever to go across the silver screen was released. You may be wondering what movie was that, and you know it's in the 80s, so it has to be good. That movie, Hoosiers. I know it's hard for you football fans to understand this, but me being from the great state of Indiana, it was, yeah, there we go. It was, it's easy for me, it was easy for me to to love this, uh, that same uh, basketball season, the Hoosiers won their last national championship. It's been a long spell since they've done it. But there's probably about 47 sermon intros I could do from this movie because I've seen it about 470 times. But this morning, one in particular, as I was preparing uh, the lesson, the, the sermon this morning, it, it just kept popping back in my mind. I don't do this on purpose and just try to weed in or fit in uh, the Hoosiers' Uh, seen every, every sermon I give, but this one kept coming back to my mind, so check out this clip, and then we'll uh, jump into God's Word. Thank you. Honey, get the ball to give you top of the key. Let's get this credit for all the 
All right. So, just to give it a little context for you lost souls who have not seen the full movie Hoosiers, which is your assignment, if nothing else this morning, to go away with, kind of the context of that leading up to that faithful shot was the Hickory Huskers had kind of rode the miracle worker Jimmy Chitwood all the way to the state finals. He had made shot after shot. He had set up his teammates for the easy bucket. He had done all the things to bring the miracle run together. And so they get down to the last shot of the last game, and coach pulls them in and says, okay, guys, here's the plan. We're going to leave script. We're going to go away from our miracle worker here, Jimmy Chitwood, and we're going to throw out a decoy, and we're going to let Ray shoot the ball. And you saw what happened. All the guys are kind of like, coach, oh, no. What's wrong with you guys? This is my plan. It's okay. But they remembered, no, wait, coach, we got the miracle worker, Jimmy, Jimmy. We got Jimmy on our team. Remember, coach? We rode him all the way here. And coach remembers, wait a minute, oh yeah, we've got the miracle worker. He makes every shot. And he's, of course, going to make the last shot, especially in a movie. <laughs> he's like, okay, okay, yeah, Ray, set a screen, give it to Jimmy, let him do his LeBron thing. Let him drive to the bucket, let him shoot that shot, let him win it for us. Let's put our faith back where we know what we've seen. And in many ways, as we get into John chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000, we see very similar instances of derision from, away from the faithful miracle worker, Jesus, and the disciples wanting to put their faith in a different kind of game plan, one that they could come back to, a different script that they've been going on. Think about all the things they had seen. They've seen dead bodies raised from the dead. They've seen sick people healed. They've seen water turned into the finest of wine. But yet we get to this scene and there's 5,000 hungry people and there's a miracle worker who they've seen time and time again, but yet they are fearful and they go back to their old game plan. As I was working through this passage over the last few weeks when Luke asked me to jump on it, at first I just thought, okay, there's a few softball things we can throw out there that every Christian in the room will be familiar with that we can just draw on and have a few applications on trusting God with. But as I started to ask the Lord, Lord, what are you teaching me in this moment? What does my soul need from this passage? What's going on? It's been a very difficult time. The heart surgery has been happening to me as I've looked at this passage because, you know, there's four different instances where this story is, comes up in the Synoptic Gospels, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where it comes up. It's the only miracle besides the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is mentioned four times. Charles Spurgeon says, that's so we can remember that God can use our little offerings to do amazing things. But all four have a different slant, a different angle. The overall end product is the same, but they have their different nuances. And in John's, as I've walked away here, I've seen his kind of place in delivering this, this passage about Jesus feeding these 5,000 
is specifically for his workers in the harvest field. I believe that there's a lesson that he is wanting to teach you, the believer, who is following Christ, seeing him do amazing things, and consistently up against this trial of faith of, will he use me to do mighty things? Will he perform miracles through my meager offerings? You know, one of my favorite Old Testament passages is early on in Genesis when Abraham, the one who had many promises given to him, uh, was called upon by the Lord after this miracle happened of being uh, given a child at the age of 90-ish, him and his wife. And the Lord asked him, okay, go take that child, Isaac. Go bring him on the hill and sacrifice him to me as an offering. Expressing your faith and trust in me, the ultimate miracle worker, Jehovah God. So he goes up there, you guys, most of you, even if you're not a Christian with us here this morning, you've probably in our culture heard this story of Abraham taking Isaac up on the offered altar, trusting that this offering will be provided for, whether God raises him from the dead or provides another son or whatever he does. And he lays Isaac up there, and about the time he rears back with that knife to give this blood sacrifice its final plunge, over in the thicket, a ram calls out. An angel or a force of some kind stops that hand from lunging into his one and only son, and he sees that ram, and there for a moment just stops and says, the Lord has provided. The Hebrew name for God there is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And you see that message throughout the Bible of God consistently putting his worker in a circumstance that has him asking a question, will God provide? And I think we see that here in John chapter 6 in the same way. As we go through this game of life, we've seen week by week as we've gone through this series, Hero, in the book of John, looking at his life, Jesus, the hero of heroes. We've seen over and over again his faithfulness, his provisions. But as we go through this game of life, there's so many times where we want to get, go off of script and not deliver the past right back to the one who makes it every time. You know, just like Jimmy, you know what Jesus says to us every time. I'll make it. I'll make it. So let's pick up here, John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw that the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of these to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, 
So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to these who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw that the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. As we look at this passage again, I think specifically he has a message for his laborers in the harvest, for his children who are following hard after him. And the first one, to keep my uh, Baptist roots genuine here, my, the first of my three points is this. Jesus provides for the faithful. Jesus provides for the faithful. And the faithful here I'm talking about are his disciples. So he opens up this passage after this. John says here, after this. So you have to look back at what happened, kind of the uh, whole, what's the therefore, therefore, we've learned over the course of the year. And so after this, and so after what? Well, he'd been performing miracles. The disciples had gone out and had been empowered to heal the sick, to cast out demons. Jesus himself had performed many miracles. Last week, specifically in the book of John, we heard about him having these very difficult conversations with the Pharisees about how they were looking for that true Messiah that John the Baptist was talking about, that Moses was talking about, that these miracles testified to. And he was saying to them, hey, big guys, it's me. Very hard stuff. These guys were tired. They'd been giving their lives away. And Jesus, knowing what his disciples needed and wanting his own personal intimacy with the Lord, said, okay, we're going to go away. We see that there in the first four verses. When they say go away here, he means get away. So they hop in a boat. You see in the other Gospels the account of them hopping in a boat and going across this sea. Now, when you think sea, you don't think the Atlantic Ocean. The Sea of Galilee or Sea of Tiberias there about a four-mile width that they were going across. So they hop in a boat, head across there. So they were really getting away from the crowds. It wasn't like, hey, let's find our own little tree over here in the corner while everybody's kind of inconspicuously going by. We'll hide out over here and have some conversations. But they were getting away. And not only that, they were going on top of a mountain. So how about you when you think about it this morning? As you've been walking with the Lord, ministering to others, giving your life away. Have you been taking advantage of those moments where the Lord is coming and saying, hey, it's time to get away a little bit? Maybe it's that daily getaway in your devotional time where you're getting up a little bit earlier or staying up a little bit later or whatever your routine is and you're sitting at the feet of Jesus on that spiritual mountaintop across that spiritual lake away from everything before alarm stock, clocks start going off and kids start asking for cocoa pebbles and all the different things. What about that weekly getaway mountaintop experience, enjoying his Sabbath rest? No matter what day of the week it is, you ultimately take that, that time to get away and refresh, refuel. In our college ministry, campus outreach, we kind of 
have set up a mandatory once a month day of prayer to where we can just evaluate, okay, what's going on? We call it our dope because it's good stuff that gets you high. Okay, it's your day of prayer and evaluation, all right? And you just take a step back and say, okay, Lord, I've been giving it away. I've been burning it at both ends and whatever capacity you've called me to do that in, whether it's in the marketplace, in work as missions, or in the home, or a full-time ministry setting, or whatever it is, and pulling away. So Jesus does that with his men. I think you can see a model there of something happening. But as they do that, the crowd sees them. Again, they're going across this lake, so to speak, in a boat with a sail. If you look in Luke, it says they noticed who these men were. Hey, that's Jesus and those disciple guys. Remember the one, water to wine? I could use some of that. Let's heal the lady who'd been bleeding for a while. I got some ailments myself. My daughter needs some. And all of a sudden, this crowd starts to, hey, let's, let's meet them over there. I know where they're going. They're going to the spot over there across the lake on the mountain. There's a grassy, grassy hill over there to get away from it all. So this large crowd starts to head over, about 5,000 men. And so many of you have probably heard, when it says men there, that's what he means, just the fellows in the account. So they're not counting the 5,000 women and the 5,000 potential boys and girls who are also there. So you're talking about 15,000 men, women, and children. So think about it. If you, how many of you guys have been to a uh, Tennessee Vols or Lady Vols basketball game? Anybody in here been to one of those? Okay, got a few of you in here on that basketball theme this morning. Yeah, so you're talking about 15,000 people or so. You know, whenever it, it was at its peak, I think the largest uh, women's game was 17,000. I think Bruce Pearl had like 22 in there against Firecode at some point with some of his teams. And so, you know, 15,000, give or take, that's about a basketball game. They all pile out of Thompson Boiling Arena. They see Jesus crossing the Tennessee River, going to that state park over there on Sevier Avenue, and they just start walking down Henley Bridge. Five, you know, 15,000 people. Jesus was trying to get his men away. You can imagine what they're thinking at the time. Man, we've been doing all these things for the Lord. He just said, hey, let's go get away. And here comes the crowd. About 15,000 of them. And the mentions there also the Passover was taking place. So there's a good chance it might have been even more people because of the amount of pilgrims who were probably passing through the area and seeing the crowd and wondering just the pure rubbernecking of, hey, let's go see what's going on. And the reaction of Christ is amazing here. And that leads to our next point. Jesus provides for the faithless. So when Jesus was providing a, a getaway for his men so they could recoup, refresh, a crowd comes, disturb, disturbs the moment, and lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Look at the response of the Savior. Now, how many moms do we have in here? Do we have any moms in the room? Okay, you guys are about to understand that. You're going to amen brother on what I'm about to say here. So Jesus, 
He has his men. They're getting away. And about the time they find that place on the hill and across the lake and the good view where they're going to get some refreshing, refueling, quiet time, they feel that 15,000-person tug on the shirt. Mom? Mom? I need some Cheerios. All the moms in the room know what I mean. About the time that baby falls, you know, falls asleep for the nap or you've gotten away, all of a sudden you hear, Mom? And all of a sudden, that moment of getaway is destroyed. And if you're anything like me, the distraction is the devil. <laughs> I mean, you're, just, you're wanting to get away, and all of a sudden, this little three-foot you know, demon comes up and disturbs my peace. And I'm sure you mothers, especially in this room, react in a very gracious way like Jesus is about to. But for me, I'm like, get out of here. This is my time. I mean, just yesterday, I mean, you can ask Mark and Sherry and Cindy, I was just a meanie. It's Saturday. It's my kind of off day. It's kind of my 24-hour day of the week to get away. And uh, I'm thinking, you know, relax, you know, have an extended time with the Lord on the couch get away, all of a sudden, we're in the middle of Market Square, and it's like 15 million fresh vegetable vendors, and I don't know how many people, and all of a sudden, I'm eating an overpriced taco out of a truck, and you know, it's, and I could just feel myself thinking, man, I deserve my break today, like the Golden Arches told me. And I'm not reacting very well to the distraction. But that's not what the Lord does here, and he models this, again, for his faithless disciples. You see, he provides for the faithless, and I'm not talking about the crowd. I'm talking about the disciples, and you see their reaction. So he comes over here to Philip. Philip's the local guy. This is his neck of the woods. He, he was from this area, so this was, this was his hood. He knew the area. And uh, so Jesus turns to him, and of course he would. All the guys are like, well, this is Philip's hometown. He knows this area. He's thinking, you know, all the other disciples are thinking, you know, if he probably asked him because Philip knows, man, there's uh, Jehoshaphat's fish and chips right around the corner. They got this great deal on group rates. You know, we can go over there, take care of this thing. And Philip gives his answer, just like the local guy would. Hey, I have your logical conclusion to this. I'm an engineer. We got engineers in the room? Okay. I've thought about this. You presented this to me. Here's the facts. They're black and white. It'll take eight months of working to feed these people, and we're talking about one fish nugget apiece for eight months of work. What are you asking of us? Aren't we like that? We're grouchy when our getaway gets disturbed. And then when the Lord makes it clear he's disturbing us for a reason, to serve others, to love our neighbor as ourself, and the plan is clear, we take a step back and we go to the, away from the game plan, away from the script that's worked every time, and we say, oh wait, there's not a miracle worker who turned water into wine, who healed sick people who helped raise people from the dead. and We're going to go back to our old logical conclusion of how can I be the Messiah of the situation with my funds, my finances, my gifts, my local knowledge. Don't we do that? 
just to be honest with you, I've moved to Knoxville to start up a new region of campus outreach. I'm not any kind of pioneer. This has been done before. I'm just standing on the shoulders of other men who've gone before me and partnering with other, just like other ministries have with great churches who are already doing the task of preaching the gospel to all creation. I have lots of track record to know that God performs miracles every time. You go in, you share your faith with the lost, people become Christians, you disciple them, you help them to reproduce out into their friends, and all of a sudden movements happen, and more laborers are raised up, and what Paul said to Timothy, and the things you have heard me say, in the presence of many witnesses and trust reliable men who will be qualified to teach others, really happens. It happened at Murray State, it happened at Arkansas State, it happened at Tennessee Tech, and God said, okay, now we're going to do it at the University of Tennessee, then it's going to go to East Tennessee State, and Tennessee Chattanooga, and then we're going to go across the country and start some new chapters all over the country, and then we're going to go across the world. Then I'm going to put you right in the middle of a uh, great relationships with an Acts 29 church who wants to do the same thing with their church planning and to model it just like Jesus did in the New Testament. I have lots of reason to believe this will happen, but the last month, I promise you, I've been like Philip. Wait a minute here. I'm not that great of a leader. I don't have it all together. I'm not organized. I don't have a CEO bone in my body, and that's really kind of the role that this thing needs. I'm more the marketing guy who's out doing tricks to get people to come into the store, you know what I'm saying? And then the Lord said, okay, I want you to preach on the feeding of the 5,000. And I was again reminded, man, I am just getting off script here. I'm not remembering the one who has been the faithful miracle worker hero time and time again. Well, then, as we move on from Philip, who's sitting there giving his data sheet of why this won't work, you have Andrew come up. Andrew's not the engineer. Andrew's the guy who says, listen, I found this kid, he's got five barley loaves, two fish. I mean, it's something, but how can this possibly feed everybody? But Andrew is to be committed here. As I look through the different commentaries and the different things that stuck out about Andrew's situation, there is that hint of, I don't see it. I don't even... My feelings don't believe it, but there is this miracle worker here who took water and made it wine, so maybe he can take this bread and fish and turn it into something. But faith is being sure of what you hope for, but certain of we do not see. He didn't necessarily see it, because his ending comment was, what can this do? How can this be of any use? But he brought it to him. He brought what little he could offer and said, okay, you've displayed hints of Jehovah Jireh over this last few weeks, months. I'll bring this offering to you. And so he does that. And in doing so, Jesus takes what little offering 
Andrew provides there and does his miracle work again. It reminds me of when I went to Arkansas State University. I had just left Murray, Kentucky, where I had been the campus director for five years. I was kind of the, the CEO of that campus ministry there uh, at 20, how old was I, honey? 25, six years old. I thought I had made it in the campus ministry world. And, uh, but before I left there, I managed to find a way to tank the thing, make it dwindle down to nothing, and in my mind was a complete failure. But the Lord said, no, that was just my handiwork. We're going to hit reset, send you over to Arkansas State, let you get a fresh start. So I jump over there, and I had been familiar with football teams as kind of the team chaplain role over at Murray and working with fraternities, things like that. And I get to Arkansas State, and my buddy who's working there with us played college football. So, of course, he wants to, you know, push him towards the team chaplain role. And uh, I start looking around at where the needs were. Okay, who are the biggest hellraisers on campus outside of the football guys that I can go to? They're not going to church on Sunday. They're not coming to the free Christian pizza party. You know, where can I go? And so I jump in to the baseball team. I played two years of Mustang in sixth grade and fifth grade. Got hit by a pitch, and it was done for me. <laughs> From that point on, I made fun of baseball because it wasn't for athletes. I was a track and field, soccer, football, basketball guy, you know, where you had to really use your athletic prowess. No offense, Maryville College. Uh, but baseball, no. I didn't, so I didn't have any interest. Didn't, I mean, outside of collecting every, you know, you know, money-worthy baseball card. That was about as far as I got. So I jump in with the baseball team. And I'm pretty sure I'm just going to make a fool of myself because I don't know what anything means. The first day I go in there, I talk to the coach. I'm wearing an Indiana Hoosier hat. And the coach is like, son, you don't wear other college university hats in my office. Yes, sir. You know what I mean? So I'm already in the hole. I go to the first practice. I start talking to guys. And he's like, yeah, I got to go do a BP. And uh, I'm like, BP, okay bullpen? Yeah, bullpen's a baseball term. Oh, yeah, bullpen, huh? Yeah. He's like, dude, it's batting practice. Do you know anything? You know, another fail. And I'm just thinking, okay, I don't have much to offer here, but the Lord reminds me, okay, you got five loaves, two fish. You just keep showing up. I'm going to do something. And so I keep showing up, and I keep bringing those five fish, two loaves, which in my case was Jesus Christ is the, and his death, burial, and resurrection are the answer to your problems, that reveals your issues, it is the gospel, the good news, and I keep preaching the gospel, all of a sudden, people start coming to Christ. Who had never been in church their whole life start wanting to worship him and follow him and fellowship with other believers, and all of a sudden, things started happening. But it took me being in a situation that pressed my faith and made me look and say, okay, Lord, what can you do with me? You see, the Lord, he's very, very interested in what you do. It's very important what you do for the Lord. Don't get me wrong. It's very, very important. He's very, very interested in it. But he's more interested in who you are. That being an adopted son who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who is the greatest display of his miracle work. And he can use you just like he uses this little boy's offering that Andrew brings to do amazing things. And so the Lord stops right there. He takes 
those five loaves and those three fish, and he gave thanks. Later on in the chapter, John will describe Jesus as the bread of life. In the other Gospels, it talks about how when he saw the crowds, he had compassion and saw that they had some physical needs that needed to be met, but he was about to meet their physical needs with the end goal of meeting their spiritual needs. And he stops, he looks up, breaks bread, thanks the Lord for providing. And he distributed it to those who were seated on this grassy field. Just a moment about this grassy field. Why would John put that in there? Why would the other gospels mention the grassy opening? I think it's because just like he knew what he was doing when he was testing Philip, he knew what he was doing when he was bringing up this crowd. And so 15,000 people, we're not talking about a 10 by 10 square on the side of the mountain. We're talking a couple football fields, right? He had preordained this situation to teach his disciples, the faithless, that he is Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. He set this thing up from the creation of the world to show that they could trust him. Just like he's showing us right now. So Jesus breaks the bread some of the liberal theologians would say, hey, there was a cave and they had, a, had it stashed in the back and they were, you know, throwing it through the, you know, this trickery, magic tricks going on here, a little shift of hands. Some of the humanistic theologians out there that really find the good in all people say, well, Jesus took this bread and said, this little boy will share. Shouldn't you all share? And all of a sudden it just inspired everybody to, you know, hold hands and drink a Coke together and share all the... No. This was a miracle. Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide, takes five loaves, two fish, and he does what he did with the dust of the ground in Genesis 1. He breathes into existence food for all these people, proving to his disciples, I am the creator. I am the God that you can trust and my attributes are right here before you. I will take something from nothing. Even when you're in your most faithless moments and I'll do something beyond what you can comprehend or understand. And so he does and they feed him and it goes on. And they distributed this out. You know, think about those disciples. <laughs> I mean, all the lessons going through. They had just been working for weeks on end. They were emotionally and physically tired, needing refueling. They get, go to get away. They're like, here's our moment. Here's our sandals resort with Jesus right across the lake. We're ready to do this thing. And all of a sudden, the people are coming, and they're going back to work. And then he gives them this lesson, and test their faith, and, you know, great, the CEO doesn't like us, we're going to get canned from this gig. And, oh, by the way, I want you guys to do all the work. You're the deacons, you're passing out the bread. One of the synopsis says they got them in groups of 50 and 100. 
How many groups is that? That's a lot of groups. Ask one of the Oak Ridge guys later to figure out the math for you, but it's like, that's a lot of work. And it wasn't each other taking turns in the, of the hungry people. It was the disciples. He said, go, spread out, fan out, work your hands down to the bone and feed these people with this miracle production of bread and fish that I'm producing. So they do that. Even in their faithlessness, I know what my attitude would have been. And it leads to our last point. Jesus provides for his workers. Jesus provides for his workers. So he provides for the faithful. His men have been faithful doing the work and he goes and pulls them away. He provides for the faithless. His men are wondering how in the world can we possibly feed all these people and all of a sudden he performs this miracle and it probably just shocks them and inspires them even though they're working and the rest was cut out. But then at the end, when it's all said and done, he provides for these workers. Listen to what it says there. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the signs that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. These disciples gathered up the leftovers. It was a Jewish custom not to leave anything out for the dogs or the birds, but to gather them up and have some stashed away for the poor, the needy, or whoever. And there's a symbolism here that Jesus leaves 12 baskets. Some would say it may represent the 12 tribes of Israel. I think it leans more towards what other commentaries say that for these 12 men whose rest was interrupted, whose faith was challenged, who just got done, again, working their tails off, and he says, and I will provide for you too. Here's your bread. One day we'll all hear, before we enter in and as we enter in, to that eternal rest, good job, my good and faithful servant. Enter in. Feed on the bread of life. You know, the gospel, some of you are here this morning, you're, you're investigating what Christianity is. The gospel says clearly and plainly this. We have broken God's law. We're liars, we're thieves, we're adulterers of heart, we're murderers of heart, we dishonor our father and mothers, we covet other people's things, we've broken his laws, we deserve a true and just punishment. But instead of the Lord God, the judge, eternal, giving us what we deserve, he steps down from the throne of heaven, enters the world, born of a virgin, lives a perfect life, and becomes our Jehovah Jireh, the one who God has provided to take on that punishment for us through his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection, proving that he really is the bread of life and that you can't enter into this eternal rest 
because of the work he's done. But the gospel is not only for you who are investigating, it's for you who've received Christ maybe many years ago. That you daily need to be reminded, Lord, I don't have the faith to follow you. I keep going off script and wanting to throw in a trick play rather than trusting what I've seen you do time and time again all the way back to that moment where I received you as Lord and Savior. But the gospel says, trust in me. I will provide again right before your eyes, even though you've seen it and already forgotten it, just like Philip and Andrew and the disciples. Follow me. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. The gospel, like Jerry Bridges says, is not just for salvation and then put on the shelf, but it's to be taken off and drank every day over and over again. So the Lord provides his men 12 baskets. And then the crowd, seeing that this was, was this that prophet from Deuteronomy that Moses talked about? Was this the new Moses? Was this the one who was going to come and be our political king to take over? The crowd had followed them for the physical needs that he would meet. And they were about to put him in a physical position of power. But the Lord, he's here to meet your spiritual needs and their spiritual needs. And he understood that and his time had not yet come and he stepped away and retreated so that I could not bring in a conjured up humanistic momentum, which would have been my plan. Because again, I'm a I want to get out there and get the momentum going. And the Lord says, no, no. The momentum's going to be spiritual momentum that happens when I take on the sins of the world on that cross. And I raise again three days later. Then after walking on this earth, I empower my people to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That will be the momentum that will never be stopped. That will be the five loaves and three fish that will feed all my elect for eternity. And I've called you to come and be my witnesses. So what about you this morning? What about me? We've all been all three people. We've been his faithful who need rest. We've been his faithless who need reminders that he is the one who's going to make it. He'll make the shot. But yet, when it's all said and done, he will provide rest for his workers, even if it's ultimately for some of us. Maybe we don't really experience it in the fullness of, until that final eternal rest. But yet that's our hope. And the one who provides, praise God for Jehovah Jireh. Let's pray. Father God, you and you alone are the miracle worker. You are the hero. We thank you that you provide for us, that you are the one who 
takes our feeble offering, takes our faithlessness, takes our lives that really don't, you don't need us, but you call us to go and be a part of dad's work and you use us, you multiply us. Thank you for the power of multiplication and may this room be full of Christ followers whose lives are multiplied, who make your name great among the nations. Lord, be with us now as we worship in song and celebrate the God who is Jehovah Jireh. As we take the bread and wine in the back, as we sing with our families and friends, that we remember that you are the one who made the ultimate provision of bread and blood for us. And may we walk away changed this morning. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.